Hello, and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills Brexit podcast. My name is Christopher Hunt, and I'm a partner in our Tokyo office. And I'm Michael McLean, a senior associate here in Tokyo. And I'm Gavin Williams. I'm a partner in our London office, and also I have responsibility for our coverage of Brexit for clients globally. Great. Thank you for joining us again on our podcast series on Brexit from the perspective of Asian investors. What do you need to know? What do you need to think about? And what do you need to prepare for? So in this episode, we're going to be discussing this month's UK-EU summit and what that might mean for investors into the UK. And we'll also talk about um, Brexit from the perspective of the UK. As you heard earlier, we're joined by Gavin Williams from London. So Gavin, uh, maybe just turn to you first. You're based in London and you've been talking to clients all over the world. Um, What are their biggest concerns at the minute? Well, Chris, we began studying the possibility of Brexit uh, nearly three years ago now. Um, And so we have been living and breathing the situation for a very long time. Um, In London, it can sometimes uh, feel a little bit like being in an echo chamber with lots of people repeating uh, similar perspectives to one another. Uh, I think what's interesting is when uh, we travel uh, around the world and speak to clients in different regions, they uh, they have a very different uh, perspective uh, and one which has the benefit of some uh, distance to set things uh, in proportion. Mm-hmm. And so this echo chamber in the UK, as you put it, um, what does that lead to in terms of companies thinking? So look, I think in the UK, it's uh, all consuming. Um, it's top of everybody's agenda. Um, it seems to uh, feature in every item in the news and every headline. Um, that's clearly not the case uh, in other parts of the world, even in the rest of Europe. Um, it's probably fourth or fifth on people's uh, list of things they're concerned about, but certainly not uh, first or second. Um, the further away you get from the UK, um, on the whole, con- uh, the concern diminishes. Um, but that said, there are a number of countries around the world and, and, and a number of those in the Asia-Pacific region for whom uh, the UK is an extremely mm. uh, important uh, country um, in terms of the levels of investment, in particular the, uh, the amount of value in their supply chains, mm. which uh, depend on the UK. Okay. And what kind of problems are these clients coming to you with and how are you going about helping them? Well, the primary responsibility uh, that clients have is to minimise disruption to their business. Um, And that typically uh, focuses attention on um, continuing the access to the markets that clients currently enjoy uh, by virtue of the UK being a member of the European Union. Uh, Now, what those specific uh, concerns or uh, the areas in which clients require help Um, are depend on uh, the nature of the client's underlying business. So a client involved in financial services, for example, will be uh, looking to assure itself that it's going to be able to continue to service clients uh, in the rest of Europe, uh, maybe out of London, for example, or for that matter, be able to service clients in the UK uh, from hubs elsewhere in the European Union. In complex manufacturing, um, supply chains often uh, crisscross uh, the English Channel, uh, the North Sea, or the Irish Sea for that matter, um, many times before um, the end product is uh, released to market. And clients involved in those supply chains will again will be looking to satisfy themselves of their ability to continue 
to, uh, to produce goods uh, using those supply chains. Um, and if they can't, uh, using their existing supply chains, looking at ways to uh, reconfigure their supply chains, either by developing new capacity in, in inside the UK or inside the EU, uh, or for that matter, looking at ways to restructure things contractually um, or, or physically. Okay, so it's this kind of restructuring that you and the team in London are principally helping clients with? That's right, Chris. I think um, the work that we do really falls into sort of three buckets, if you will. Uh, we've been talking about it to clients using the three A's, analyze, assess, and address. Analyze being the, if you like, the due diligence on your own on your own business. Uh, the assessment being the calibration or the uh, evaluation of the impact or the significance of a particular uh, exposure to Brexit risk, if you like, uh, and address meaning, well, what are you going to do about it? And and, and for good many clients, um, we are advanced in that process now. Increasingly, the uh, analysis and assessments uh, have been made, and we're now into the, uh, if you like, the execution phase. Uh, and that can take a variety of forms. It might be um, executing a piece of uh, strategic M&A in order to preserve uh, access to a particular markets. Uh, it may be restructuring a contractual um, set of contractual arrangements, maybe repapering con contracts in order to make them work uh, post-Brexit. Um, and a lot of this is being done using a hard Brexit or no-deal Brexit as a baseline uh, from which to operate because um, it's very difficult to imagine or to, to use any other point of reference uh, for that purpose because, uh, frankly, between no-deal and our current uh, situation, um, no one yet quite knows where things are going to land. Okay, well, you mentioned that phrase, hard Brexit and no deal, um, things that you hear a lot in the media. Just as a very brief recap, what do you mean when you say a hard Brexit and no deal? Um, so, Chris, the um, working assumption is that there will be some form of agreement um, reached with the European Union, and that will include... Um, a transition or implementation period. Mm -hmm. uh, the European uh, Commission refers to it as a, a transition. Um, the UK government refers to it as an implementation period. Uh, it amounts to the same thing and it effectively um, provides some breathing space uh, for around two years, um, during which time, um, to all intents and purposes, things remain as they are, mm. um, to allow further discussion to take place as to the precise form of the future relationship, at the end of which period that future relationship will take effect in law, or if necessary, there'll be a further extension mm. to allow the time required in order to implement the terms of the agreement. So this now, starts after the 29th of March and goes up to the end of 2020. That's right. Um, and But that assumes that we've, we reach an agreement right. between... Uh, the UK on the one hand and the European Union on the other hand. Now, um, in the event that an agreement isn't reached, um, then the UK um, could or will, as things stand, leave the European Union on the 29th of March without any uh, other form of agreement. And what that um, results in, for the purposes of, um, of, of your listeners, is um, the UK crashing out uh, in what is being referred to, as you mentioned, uh, as a hard, uh, hard Brexit. Now, hard Brexit refers to the UK only having World Trade Organization rules to rely upon, um, which uh, provide a very scant um, 
support and the framework for ongoing cross-border trade between the UK and the, the rest of the EU. Um, that uh, would fall very far short of um, the existing arrangement, which um, have built up over the course of 40 years, um, and would represent a significant, uh, significantly deteriorated position uh, relative to the market access which is enjoyed reciprocally between the UK and the EU at present. Okay, so hard Brexit, no deal. It's a possibility, and as we said, we hear about it a lot. Maybe that's a good time to turn to you, Michael. Um, There was a summit last week. I should just say for context, we're recording this on the 23rd of October 2018. I always mention this, just given how quickly things uh, move on. Um, So, Michael, there was a summit last week between the EU and the UK. Big picture terms, what happened? Yes, that's, that's right, Chris, and it's, it's been a very uh, fast-moving week uh, with the negotiations between the UK and the EU. Uh, just last Sunday, the 14th of October, uh, the negotiations were actually uh, abandoned, um, not abandoned in the sense of uh, uh, with no hope of a, a deal, but just to give the parties pause to, uh, to take stock of their situation. Uh, and that meant that the... Uh, the mood at the start of the summit, which began uh, last Wednesday, um, was far from optimistic. Uh, Donald Tusk, um, who's the president of the European Council, uh, said that there were, in fact, no grounds for optimism going into that uh, summit. Um, so over the uh, second half of last week, uh, the EU leaders have been meeting to decide whether there'd been sufficient progress uh, in the negotiations uh, and, and also to discuss how to break the impasse um, over the Irish border problem, that's where uh, the, the problem where uh, goods are travelling from Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, which will remain in the European Union uh, across the land border into Northern Ireland, uh, which is part of the United Kingdom and uh, will leave the European Union. Okay, so um, didn't sound like a very good start. The mood music didn't start very well, but how did the actual summit go? What, what kind of issues were discussed? Yes, well, well what, what, what a difference a, a week makes. Um, Theresa May updated uh, the UK Parliament uh, yesterday on progress arising out of the negotiations and, and, and the summit uh, and said that a deal is around 95% done. Um, uh, Guy Verhofstadt, who is the uh, European Parliament's representative at uh, the Brexit negotiations, said that he thought a deal was around 90% done. Um, but I think both sides agree that the, the remaining sticking point is uh, this Irish border um, issue with issues such as uh, citizens' rights, the amount of money that the UK will pay to the EU and even the, um, the structure and scope of the future relationship um, being largely settled matters. OK, so um, it sounds like there was uh, some movement on both sides to try and move things along. Um, what has the EU been saying? Uh, the the EU um, has historically adopted the position that it's for the United Kingdom to uh, come up with proposals on, on how to avoid a, a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, nonetheless, it did suggest last week uh, a potential option of extending the uh, transition period or the implementation period that um, Gavin and yourself were talking about earlier. Uh, that's um, caused uh, some political commotion um, within the United Kingdom. 
there are a number of issues um, as to whether that would result uh, in a significant increase in, to, in the UK's contribution to the EU. Um, it's already around 39 billion is, is the figure being talked about for the UK's contribution for the transition period to the end of 2020. Uh, and some of the figures being um, talked about are around 15 billion, perhaps to extend that for so, another year. So the longer that the, e, uh, the, the UK has this transition period, the more that it needs to pay. Yes, that's right. That, that's, that's certainly one issue. Um, another issue is that uh, extending the transitional period um, doesn't necessarily solve the, the problem about whether the, the, the backstop, as the EU calls it, so that's where um, Northern Ireland would be uh, subject to the uh, current rules that apply in the customs union, whereas the re- rest of the United Kingdom would have its own or, or, or different rules, um, whether that backstop could even be avoided. Uh, and certainly uh, extending the, the transitional period is, is no substitute for, for reaching some sort of definitive agreement that will provide certainty. Okay, so long story short, Ireland seems, well, the, the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland seems to be the main sticking point. Yes, that's right. Okay, all right. So it sounds like um, they've narrowed a lot of issues. You're mentioning 90% or 95% of the deal done. Um, and that sounds like a lot has been achieved. Gavin, in that context, um, should we be optimistic? Do you think that a deal is going to be done? Um, I think we must be optimistic, Chris, because the the alternative of there being no deal um, is a pretty bleak uh, prospect, um, which I think having spent the last uh, two or three years analysing this situation, uh, I've come to the conclusion that um, there will be a deal um, quite how extensive it will be um, in the in its final doing, uh, only time will tell. And and I think the expression of um, a uh, an outline um, of, of the future relationship between the UK and the EU will come through. Uh, that's not to detract from the difficulty of solving the Irish border issue. And I fully agree that there's. Uh, that it's going to be a question of kicking the can down the road, in, in my expectation. Um, it's very difficult uh, to imagine that um, a Prime Minister from the governing party, which uh, the full name of which is the Conservative and Unionist Party, it's very difficult to imagine that, that, that a Prime Minister from the Conservative Party could ever agree to um, a solution which, however remotely, um, uh, the, the Possibility might, might, or have a remote the possibility might be, it's very difficult to imagine that they could ever agree to a situation which would effectively um, bisect the United Kingdom. Um, so I think that there's going to have to be a creative uh, solution. I think the term that was used when the withdrawal agreement was negotiated uh, was constructive ambiguity. I think they're going to need all of the constructive ambiguity they can uh, they can find in order to solve this this, this problem uh, and allow them to move to the stage of making the declaration on the future relationship. Okay, so if I'm a company and I'm hearing this and I'm saying, right, <clears throat> Gavin, it sounds quite optimistic. I can hear it in his voice. Should I be thinking? I don't need to make any plans for a no deal, or should I still be doing that anyway? Uh, well, you wouldn't expect me to say that, uh, <laughs> that that would be a prudent course of action, Chris. I think from a, the point of view of uh, good governance, um, clients uh, should and are um, uh, 
analysing methodically their exposure to the risk of, of no deal uh, and planning accordingly. Um, no, uh, nobody wants to find themselves on the 29th of March next year without uh, having some contingency plans um, in place. Uh, and for many organisations, that means taking action now. Um, we've seen uh, a, a marked uptick in activity in the in the last few months. Um, a good many clients around the world were quite uh, legitimately uh, putting off taking uh, action. Um, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to adopt that as a legitimate uh, position um, in the context of uh, good risk management. Uh, Brexit sits alongside lots of other risks that clients have to deal with, uh, but as it as the date uh, gets nearer. Um, and with, without full clarity on uh, what uh, is going to happen on the 30th of March 2019, um, I don't think clients have much option other than now to, uh, to, to do that analysis, to do the diligence on their own businesses uh, and to make plans uh, for the worst, even though, as you say, I remain opt optimistic that it won't come to that. <laughs> okay, so key message, it's not too late to start if you haven't started. Never too late to start, um, but I think increasingly difficult uh, uh, not, to make, uh, not to make plans. Okay, well, I think that's all we've got time for. Gavin, thank you very much for joining us. Michael, thank you very much as well. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to receive further episodes. Thanks for listening and goodbye. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.